one of the things that is really true historically is that compared to the generality of human beings, we have no excuses. <laughs> you know, I mean, <laughs> there were people pulling dredges up the Volga for <laughs> centuries, you know. <laughs> uh, we uh, actually have, by human standards, a lot of time for ourselves, you know. Um, it's how we use it and whether we choose to value it that is that is the mark of our period, I would say. Welcome to Reenchanting, the podcast from Seen and Unseen, part of the Centre for Cultural Witness. And you can find us at the website seenandunseen.com. I'm Justin Briley, and my co-host is Belle. Hi, Belle. Hi, great to be here. And we are so pleased today to be joined by Marilyn Robinson. Oh, so pleased. Marilyn Robinson is the Pulitzer Prize winning author of so many bestsellers, including Gilead, Home, Housekeeping, Lila, Jack, uh, with a particular interest in theology and scripture and, the, and what that has to offer contemporary life. Marilyn has written extensively on the intersection between faith, science, art and culture. We are so excited to have you here. We are. We are indeed. Uh, and Marilyn today speaking to us from the US. So we're not as we normally are, seated in Lambeth Palace Library itself, overlooking London. Uh, we couldn't quite afford to fly you out, I'm afraid, Marilyn, on this occasion. Uh, but you're you're looking very happy and homely uh, in, in your own setting there. Um, you continue to write and have helped many others to write as well, I know, as Professor Emerita of the University of Iowa's Writers' Workshop and Department of English. And today we're, we're going to be exploring with you your novels, your essays, and the way you sought to re-enchant, really, the human story through all of that. So so welcome along to the Re-Enchanting podcast. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. It's, there's so much to talk about, and I'm so excited about, well, so much to say, but we always start this podcast the same way. And it's because, as Justin has said, usually we're on sat on the rooftop of Lambeth Palace Library. Um, and so we always start the podcast with the same question, which is what books are currently on your bedside table? What books are you currently reading? Actually, I'm reading an, a brand new novel, not yet out, by a former student of mine, Ayanna Mathis. Um, and I have been reading also, uh, her her book is called The Unsettled. Um, and then I'm also reading a very fine novel by a former student, Adam, Adam Hazlett, uh, called Imagine Me Gone, uh, that came out years ago. And frankly, I was so, I can't keep up with all the books that come out that really have to read, you know, but they're both wonderful. Great. I, I was going to ask, do do you do a lot of nonfiction reading as, as well as the novels and so on? I do mostly nonfiction reading, actually. It, what? Why is that? Is that just because, uh, you know, that's where your interest lies? Um, because you, is it difficult to read other people's fiction? I don't know. <laughs> it can be, in, in, in truth, it can be. Um but I find that there is reading outside, you know, fiction is very stimulating to me. I I read, um, you know, kind of popular versions of quantum theory, and I read uh, to the extent that I can um, earlier sources of, uh, you know, seventeenth-century Puritans and so on, um, and the whole the whole history that surrounds the period when American and British uh, 
history absolutely overlapped, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, I, you know, these fascinations develop. I'm grateful for them because I enjoy them. Um, and they give me another agenda than, than simply thinking about or writing about fiction. You have described yourself, do describe yourself uh, as a Christian humanist. And maybe for many people, um, many listeners, that may sort of feel like a bit of an oxymoron um, because of what everything that humanism has sort of become associated with. How do you define that term? How do you break it open? How do you see those two sort of belongings belonging together? Well, they they come from absolutely the same root. You know, um, a person like John Calvin was trained as a humanist and aspired to be one and and the first thing that he published was actually an, an essay on Seneca. Um, the The division between humanism, I think, and religion has, in historical terms, been relatively recent. Um, schools that were established to maintain a, a learned clergy, you know, like Harvard, um, always required that a full humanist education before anyone could begin working toward a divinity degree, you know. Um, they they read the, the Latin classics and all those sorts of things um, on the assumption that just knowing <laughs> knowing how human beings have existed in the world and what they've thought and so on is a, 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 a positive enrichment of anything that you can know um, theologically. Hmm. Uh, one of our other guests on this podcast, Tom Holland, who's a, a popular historian here in the UK, has written, I don't know if you've come across it, Marilyn, a book called Dominion, in which he lays out the way in which he believes, even as a secular historian, that Christianity has essentially shaped the West and its moral instincts. And and his view is that humanism in its modern form, secular material is humanism, is essentially simply borrowing the ideals and assumptions of Christianity. I mean, is, is that a perspective you would share? Um, in general, yes. Um I think that the basic assumptions of Christianity, uh, the, the you know profound value of an individual soul, that sort of thing, um, I think that that moves very uh, it, it moves very naturally into other ways of thinking and other you know even religious articulations and so on. Um, the, I'm I'm very sorry to see that very often um, Christianity is used against Christian values, has been historically and is now. Um, so what to do about that? Well, what what to do? One thing you could do, I suppose, is write novels. And that's obviously the, the thing you're most, most known for. Um, I, I mean, t- tell us about perhaps how that began, if you would, Marilyn, because it was housekeeping, which was, in, of course, your breakthrough novel, though it was another 25 years before Gilead appeared. Um, 24. 24. OK, <laughs> I stand corrected. At least in this country. <laughs> <laughs> um, so so what, did, did you what, what motivated that first novel and, and why the long pause before Gilead? Um, well, you know, um, I, I studied fiction writing in college at Brown, which was, and, and it did me a lot of good. Uh, but I knew from hearing people talk about fiction that it had, you know, that it had falsified many things, you know, one of them being uh, 
the 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 narrative of the west and and I was the fourth or fifth generation in my family to live in the far west you know and uh so I wanted to write another narrative in which um the the enchantment that people feel with the land was you know an aesthetic impetus and also the the very great importance of of women you know mm. um the in my family stories about old times tended to to circle around women um and so i was sort of rewriting you know the west but i i um uh, Thought I was at the same time I was doing that I was sort of rewriting New England <laughs> because I was so deeply struck by the uh, literary methods and so on of of the of New Eng- the great New Englanders you know so the many allusions to Thoreau and Melville and so on all the way through Emerson um, I thought I was writing an unpublishable book um, partly because it was full of jokes and allusions that I was making for my own <laughs> satisfaction. <laughs> um, and in fact, you know, I didn't send it. I didn't, um, a, f- a friend of mine whom I told I had written a book, so sent it to his agent. And I didn't know this had happened until I got a letter from the agent saying that she was happy wow. to present the book. <laughs> so <laughs> a very beatified sort of entry into the literary world, you know. And then it was published very quickly after that. So anyway, um, it was a, a little mental project of my own that I thought would never see the light of day. Mm. Um, much I knew, you know. Wow, gosh. You, um, I'm sure you get this a lot, but you you and your work and, and your writing and also hearing, you know, some interviews and things that you've done, um, the 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 way you love humanity, human beings, is it really shines through. You make me love my own human existence in a sort of a way. I won't go on a tangent, but in sort of a way, I didn't realize I'd been missing, if you know what I mean, in so much literature and all of that. And I think what I'm intrigued about is what came first. I, when you read um, all, all of your novels, but if I take Gilead and I take, you know, John Ames and that, when um, you read that, I, you can feel the care and um, almost the fascination you have in that character and in the complexities and in his inner workings, in him as a holistic, very complex being. And so what I'm intrigued is which came first? Did your fascination with humanity, with our minds, with our souls, with the connection between them um, come first and then that channeled into characters in your novel or actually was it the other way around and as you were creating these wonderfully complex characters you started to value the complexity of your own humanity and that of your friends and your family and your postman and your doctor well you know it's hard to say what comes first in these in these things I I had been reading a lot of 19th century writing about um, the abolitionist period, you know, writing from okay. the, the abolitionists themselves. Um, and there's an, a very great sort of vitality and, and humor also in a great deal that they wrote, you know. Um, and so um, I, you know, I had sort of stored my brain with what would become Gilead without intentionally doing that. 
Um, and then at a certain point, I simply knew this character. How these things happen, I don't know. I knew this character that would be the the one that sort of bore the historical burden or treasure or whatever you call it of all this uh, earlier life. And um, without knowing it, I did prepare his character, I think, uh, quite quite richly, you know. Uh, I had to stole it all to the Beecher family. I was just going to say, you 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 write that novel through his interior monologue. You know, it it it's such a unique way of storytelling. And you know, do you yourself really value your interior monologue in that way? And do you think actually that's something that we're losing as we're becoming a quicker society, a more distracted humanity, a more technologically focused? Is that something that we're sort of starving ourselves of, really listening to our own inner monologues? Um, I think that that's true in a way. I, I think that, uh, I mean, one of the things that I believe almost um, as a credo, you know, is that uh, there's great richness and great complexity in hu- any human experience. And oddly enough, uh, people can be self-alienated in a degree that they don't value the actual, mm-hmm. they don't realize the actual value of of what they themselves uniquely perceive or value or whatever. Um, I uh, think that we can talk ourselves out of things that are ours, that are our birthright, really, that it's, you know, there's nothing about technology necessarily uh, that should alienate ourselves from ourselves in, in that way. Simply the kind of attention we choose to place where, you know, Um, and one of the things that is really true historically is that, Compared to the generality of human beings, we have no excuses. <laughs> you know, I mean, there were people pulling dredges up the Volga for centuries, you know. <laughs> uh, we uh, actually have, by human standards, a lot of time to ourselves, you know. Um, it's how we use it and whether we choose to value it that is that is the mark of our period, I would say. I, I so enjoyed reading Gilead. In fact, I've got my copy with me right now. Um, I, I came <laughs> relatively late, though, to this. I only read it last year, Marilyn, but have fallen in love with your writing since. Um, but what I love about, you know, channeling the character of John Ames and the the interior monologue, if you like, it, it, it reveals a sort of it, it reveals someone in a kind of gently unfolding way and a life and uh, a character and experience and it, it intrigued me to to know whether you sort of in any sense have a similar experience do you do you kind of consciously have a an interior monologue of sorts or or is it rather different when you're putting that to paper you're sort of trying to express it in a way in, in the novel i it's very different i i don't know where my characters come from i'm very charmed by the fact that they are different from me you know um at the same time it's true that i put in a great deal of internal monologue time. There's no question about that. I often have questions of some kind that I can't resolve in my mind or something, you know, and, um, you know, a privilege and a pleasure to be able to, to think about them at length. Um, I think differently when I'm writing than under any other circumstances. And I'm often surprised to see what I write, um, which is another strange privilege of this kind of life, you know. Do you say that the life of an, 
someone writing in your genre, I suppose, is is one that allows a certain degree of self-reflection that perhaps you might not have in, in another career or path of life? It's a different kind. You know, um, I have found, I think that this is even, you know, laboratory tested, you know, that you have a much bigger vocabulary, for example, than you're aware of having, and that your memory is is much richer than you would assume it would be, and not necessarily selective in the by your sort of daylight notions of significance, but rich in the sense that it knows what should be treasured, you know. Um, I uh, think that putting the special demand on one's mind that one does in writing um, enlarges vastly and and alters very substantially uh, your sense of what your mind is. Uh, it, It, you know, have you ever had those dream, a dream where, you find out that there are more rooms to to your house than you ever dreamed there were, and there are people living in these. <laughs> and so yeah. on. I mean, maybe maybe that's a novelist dream. I don't know, <laughs> but in any case, that's kind of the sensation. Oh, I didn't know that was there. Some some door has opened on things that I would have thought I just lost in the course of time. You know, mm. um, kind of a subject of housekeeping, actually. If I may quote you to you, which must be such a disconcerting experience. (laughs) I'm hard to disconcert, believe me. (laughs) I think it was in an essay on humanism and you sort of reminded me of it then. Uh, You said, I find the soul a valuable concept, a a statement of the dignity of a human life and of the unutterable gravity of human action and experience. And then there's this part, which I love so much and I'd love you to chat a little bit about it because you say I would add to that that I find my own soul interesting company and then you say if this did not seem to cast doubt on my impeccable objectivity but that's what's fascinating about your work is it's almost like you find your mind your soul so fascinating and you find it really interesting company can you just speak a little bit about what you mean by that and sort of what people may be missing by not um, regarding themselves as interesting company, their own souls as interesting company. Um, I think part of what, you know, the, the, the idea of soul is, is very, very uh, interesting um, because it is so individuated, you know, at the same time that, my awareness of my soul feels to me like the best access I have into anyone else's experience, you know? Wow. So it's, you know, yeah, it, it isn't limited. It's not, a, it's not, you know, self care or something like that. Mm-hmm. It's a sort of primary experience of being human and which is very interesting. Yeah, I think it's, uh, again, another previous guest. We're doing very well at plugging these, actually, aren't we, Justin? (laughs) Another previous guest, Francis Spufford, in his uh, book, Why Christianity Still Makes Surprising Sense, he says, um, we ought to have a a passion, a passionate curiosity about other people's minds, about other people's souls, because when you do so, you're tapping into the love that transcends all things. And so is it sort of that sort of thing that if you become extremely fascinated towards your your own self your own mind your own soul you can't that curiosity and compassion is much easier to put into characters but also to put into people you meet in your everyday life yes that's true i i am um, i think that you know 
that this is an area of sort of divine mystery. One never finds one's soul, you know, in the sense of completely knowing it and so on. You know, it's always the the interesting stranger in a certain way, you know, uh, mm-hmm. which means, of course, that, that it never ceases to be extremely, I mean, essentially interesting, you know. Speaking of the soul, that there's a sense in which, you know, that could cover a, a range of things in modern life, consciousness, um, the mind. Uh, obviously, it has a theological tone when we use the word the soul. But obviously, there are those, and you've written in response to them, materialists, uh, and neuroscientists who, who would like to say, well, we know we know what that is. We, we've done our neuroscience and our imaging, and we know what lights up when people have experiences. Uh, and therefore, we can reduce it essentially to a physical thing. It's 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 not mysterious, really. It's just what happens when certain parts of the brain get stimulated and and so on. You you've been very active actually in various essays and elsewhere, refuting and rebutting that. What why why do you feel so strongly about that? And I suppose how does it relate to what you're trying to do through your your novels uh, when you write essays against that sort of materialist perspective of mind and consciousness? Um, well, you know, uh, aesthetically, I think that that's a very deprived sort of area of human thought. As a matter of fact, <laughs> it, it begins with a sort of decapitation. You know, what is most interesting about a human being? The the mind, you know, the create, you know, what we do in the world, how we interact with society and history and civilization, you know. Um, all of these things cannot be looked at. They're off the screen as far as this kind of uh, scientific thought is concerned. Um, I, in, in a, you know, when you think of the mind, the human mind, which they say is the most complex thing known to exist in the universe, that's re- reputable. Um, that is, so far as we have access to such things, that is the the fullest expression of what is physically possible you know this is this is the ultimate flowering of all the quarks and the electrons mm. you know so how do you know what they are if you do not look at the ultimate expression of what they are you know mm. I mean, consciousness is not a side product it's an essential thing you know and it so you know say it's transacted among you know subatomic particles then Look at it, uh, you know, with the kind of curiosity that should come to bear if you're actually looking at mm. what these things are, what this absolute, you know, uh, uh, microscopic view of, of reality is, you know. Um, I mean, that's one thing. And then more more deeply than that, I resent the unscientific quality of this thinking, you know. I mean, uh, the the fact that these people can say, oh, quantum, you know, nobody understands it. Nobody <laughs> understands it. That's a fact. But we know things that are revelations of, you know, of the profounder textures and fabrics of existence itself, you know, um, which throw all kinds of things into question about what materiality is even, you know. Mm. I mean, this this idea of privileging the solid, the blockish, you know, when we know that for some reason we can't begin to account for, it is the consequence, the simultaneous life of, you know, quarks and electrons, yeah. you know. I, uh, I I love the, the imagery you have there of the fact that 
the idea of reducing everything to the quarks and electrons, the fact that it's when those are the most interesting when you have a mind and a creative mind that that's you should take that into account and and but the problem is i think in the sciences there is that tendency to to go in the reductionist direction and say well if i can simply locate and describe all the individual bits then i've described the whole um mm. when of course actually it often works the other way around almost that it's only once we've got this thing called consciousness that we can make sense of any of that stuff that 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 sort of supposedly is is at the root of it and I don't know whether that's just a sign, you know, whether it's it's more natural in the for a novelist, an artist to 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 sort of look at the big picture rather than pull everything apart into the constituent parts in the sort of materialist reductionist. I, I even had a conversation with Philip Pullman once, who I'm sure you're aware of, British novelist and writer, who is himself an atheist, but said i'm he, in this conversation he said to me i i'm i'm rather looked askance upon by some of my atheist colleagues because i don't believe this account of there being no consciousness he actually believes that there is a consciousness exists in and of itself he thinks that that is the fundamental reality so he actually goes by this you know to give it his formal name panpsychism is 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 where he falls and i just find it interesting that that even you know someone who has rejected organized religion and so on does does still doesn't sit easily with the kind of the naturalist view that it's really all boils down to quarks and electrons and protons and i don't know whether you find that in in when you speak to others in your sort of field even if they don't claim any religious faith marilyn that they're they're not content with the the world view of a sort of reductionist naturalism i don't think many people are content with it actually except the people who write the books about it you know (laughs) (laughs) um (laughs) I find, you know, when you have conversations that are relevant to this, and they're very rare, people who call themselves atheists are actually theists, no question about it, who will say things like, God must be very angry, you know, <laughs> or or they, you know, God bless them, that they do lapse into prayer in difficult circumstances and so on, you know. I don't think that people are willingly atheists i think that they have been for the most part you know i don't want to but i think that many people simply call themselves that because they uh they lack instruction which has been the old the project of christianity since saint paul you know mm. uh or since since the ethiopian you know how can i know if no one explains it to me you know um and we have managed uh i mean we put religion out of sight, out of respect for diversity of religion. But that slides over into uh, the idea of religion as being uh, assertive in an inappropriate way or something, if it's allowed. Uh, we have stopped teaching in a way that um, makes theistic thought possible. You know, I mean, nobody says, well, Hegel was a Lutheran, you know, they never, you know, um, the um, and that makes people, uh, you know, sort of illiterate from uh, as far as religious thought is concerned. They have no idea what it is, actually, mm. even though they have mm. read their Hegel, you know, um, I, I don't know. I don't think we can actually have a clear understanding of who would choose to be an atheist if uh if people spoke more intelligently, more richly about what, what theism is, you know? Mm. Mm, yeah. I, I, um, 
I suppose, you know, the the title of this podcast is re-enchanting and it's, you know, a sort of rebuttal, I guess, an acknowledgement and then a rebuttal of disenchantment. Um, and I think these, if, if we were all willing, willing to accept that things were material and nothing more, then they wouldn't be this inherent dissatisfaction that we seem to have on an individual level, but also on sort of a more societal level with disenchantment, you know, and I suppose whether that comes from our minds or like you've spoken about the mystery of our own souls and the fact that there's still an element of our own selves that feels like a stranger to us. And that must mean that there must be, you know, that we cannot possibly measure everything. We can't even measure and grasp ourselves, I suppose. So it's sort of, it plays into that. And I think, um, you know, there's an there's a quote again, <laughs> quoting you to you, but you said um, talking about the lit, the literacy and the language around and how we're losing that and, you know, perhaps have lost that, that needs a resurgence. Um, you said theology must recognize there is something thrilling about the universe. What do you mean by that? And how can theology, which is, well, which is so, you know, if I'm just thinking about society as a whole, there, there isn't even sort of a category of understanding for it in a way that there was, you know, decades ago. How can theology be brought back into the conversation? Um, how can enchantment be brought back into the conversation? How can we sort of stoke those conversations again um, in a way that is inspiring to people? Um, well, you know, I think that, uh, I mean, one thing would be to write well <laughs> about, you know, and people don't put themselves at risk. You know, uh, they yeah. say, you know, they have the idea that people would think badly of them if they wrote about religion. This is, I hear this very often, how brave you must have been, you know, then no brave, no courage required at all. Nobody's ever said a rude word to me about my theological interest, <laughs> you know, but, but one thing is that another thing is that, uh, Christianity is an outpouring of printed language. I mean, you, you know, if you read in the Reformation and and uh, the Counter-Reformation and so on, uh, really profoundly serious articulations are made in fine language and they're on mm. the shelves of Britain and the shelves of America, you know. And all you have to do really, I mean, people thank me for bringing up John Calvin how remarkable, you know, I mean, that's quite a, quite a <laughs> reversal. Um, but he's a wonderful <laughs> writer and what a great metaphysician, you know, and there he is. Um, it's a, a tradition that has no excuse for being so completely ignorant of itself because all of its great people over all time have done everything they could to make these uh, understandings uh, available and, and mm. deeply considered. You know, using the word material, and I was talking about electrons and so on, you know, but I don't think of them as material. I think of them as, I mean, there's no grounds for that. You, They are occasions of whatever, of the mm. occasions of the the realization of being you know mm. uh they 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 come and go they you know what i mean they are uh you can't place them anywhere at any particular time and so on so the idea of the material just frays away into what is a this, this fine 
tissue of, of interaction, you know, um, the being of anything, including even space, being dependent on interaction with mm. something that allows it yeah. to be space and so on, you know. So we've made a false dichotomy between the material and anything, you know, any imagined non-material mm. uh, that, uh, you know, for, allows us to forget the utter you know what should i tenuousness of of this a miraculously scaled reality that for some reason or other we can drive nails into and 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 so on you know um so i'm not saying i'm not making a materialist argument when i talk about you know the finest grains of reality that we can yeah speak of uh, i'm not i'm uh, i'm saying that something much stranger is happening yes and something accessible to influence by, for example, God, you know, if you want, you know, I mean, profoundly and utterly accessible to influence. I, I was going to say, it, most people do think of the word theology rather in like, well, it's another branch of learning like ornithology or biology, you know, whereas of course you go back a few centuries as well said, and, it was part of the warp and woof of how people looked at the world. And there was no sort of distinction between theology versus biology and other things. It, you know, the, the, our you know oldest academic institutions were founded as places of Christian learning, which obviously you learned the sciences and the humanities and everything, but it was all under the umbrella of, in a sense, a theological understanding of the world and the way it held together. And I almost see you as, in in your own way, Marilyn, doing that kind of public theology through your writing you're not necessarily writing theological books but you are writing in a way that opens up the world in that sort of way um and i wonder whether you know sometimes we don't realize that theology is going on in our culture even without us realizing it where i don't know you two or bono or someone writes or sings songs that essentially open up that that aspect of of reality for people and they might not realize that they're in the process, doing a bit of theology as they read Gilead or, or listen to that song or, or another. What what do you think of that? I think that's true. I th- I listen to a gospel music, you know, which I often hear. And in when I, I was hearing a song this morning that said "Hallelujah Anyhow," <laughs> <laughs> and uh, you know, I there those are words to live by, you know, yeah. um, and. <laughs> You know, particularly in that area, I think there's very active theology going on. Mm. And just sticking with John Calvin for a moment, this has been sort of constantly whenever I've read interviews with you, this comes up, the fact that you're a fan (laughs) of John Calvin. What obviously he has had a bit of a bad reputation in recent years for whatever reason. I suppose it's, it's linked to the fact that some expressions of Calvinism can seem very dour and even... Uh, you know the predestination side of things can can look very severe to some and and what what are people getting wrong with the kind of popular caricature of John Calvin versus what you obviously find so compelling and interesting about his writing well that's such a complex question you know if you read Calvin you know he says these amazing things like knowledge if to find God descend into yourself Mm. which is a very radically humanist idea Mm. um or to uh find yourself be you know be deeply instructed in god you know um he says uh, in terms of our obligations to other people that we are always 
confronting an image of God, that God is always presenting a question to us and the fact of appearing to us in the form of a stranger. That if if we are injured by someone, Jesus is already forgiving them. Mm. So we have no grounds for, you know, any of the negative reactions. I'm I'm not doing well by his pretty lovely prose, but in any case, uh, as it comes through translation anyway, um, he was the most influential Protestant theologian by far, and that made him the central object of, of polemic against Reformation, uh, certainly in English language countries. Um, I, I don't, you know, frankly, I, I think that he has become a cartoon in the fact of not being read. That's our solution for everything. Theology has become a cartoon not being read. Um, <laughs> and, uh, you know, I mean, we can't defend ourselves from the consequences of our own ignorance, um, except by, of course, looking at what we think we know about and finding out what is actually there to be seen. Oh, my grandparents will absolutely love that I'm having a public chat about Calvinism. <laughs> I remember I remember being so young and them teaching me the tulip acronym. <laughs> <You know? laughs> anyway, um, so much of it seems to be that this idea that humans are never making the first move. They're always reactionary. God has always made the first move in Christian thought. And does that sort of link to, you know, you've got your that amazing piece of work, the givenness of things. Is that some of what you were trying um and and have I think so beautifully sort of articulated is is the reactionary nature of reality. I I I, th- I think I was talking about the arbitrary character of things, you know. Okay. That that in this buzzing, humming, you know, elusive universe, we are given a small reality in which we are able to make what is for us human sense of things, you know. Mm. Um, that the fact of the sort of uh, quotidian quality of our experience is fair is a great, great error. The fact of its solidity and reliability and so on is is more miraculous in the sense of being untypical of the universe or of being at large uh, than than anything else. You know, um, it, it's a little Eden. It's a it's a you know, I, you, it's so hard not to use inappropriate categories, you know, like space and time. But, um, you know, there is, if you consider the universe, if you consider it macro scale or micro scale, there is no, there's no analogy for what we deal with here. You know, the fact that the spring and the fall and, you know, everything uh, uh, is in a certain sense understandable by us who, who understand Mm. so little except within these very qualified terms. I would say that the tulip, you know, was not Calvin. He that oh. just consider the fact that the French for tulip is probably something quite different. Yeah, know, absolutely. Yeah, Latin, yeah. Latin would be <laughs> what Calvin would no doubt use. Okay. I'll tell my grandparents not to listen for, to for, for, <laughs> for, for those who think we're having a conversation about flowers, it, it's probably worth saying that, that this is an acronym that has often been associated with a kind of yeah. almost hyper-Calvinist uh, view of uh, salvation <laughs> and limited atonement. And, you know, and, and I believe having read that it was actually invented by an American woman, so right. I accept her guilt and ask pardon. <laughs> I, it's interesting, though, because everything you've said makes me feel like people so often don't go back to the sources, do they? They mm. they tend to get a secondhand 
regurgitation of things and and so often it is a caricature sadly of what people actually wrote and said and thought and 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 it's a reminder that actually we we can't live on other people's opinions necessarily and sadly we we do that all the time in today's culture because we're constantly being fed a bite-sized version of something through some media channel and we rarely actually Mm. hear from the people themselves in a genuine fully full-bodied expression of what they actually think and who they are do we right it's very true. And, you know, uh, a lot of what is presented as being sort of the out of the field of common knowledge is just wrong. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, they've fired too many fact checkers or something. I mean, it can just be appalling. <laughs> if anything is, you know, pre-20th century, you know, all bets are off. What What's for you is the advantage of um, doing what you do through the novels? I mean, You've you've written many essays, and in fact, I was you know, fascinatingly one of your books that one of the main books you wrote after Housekeeping was actually based on a very specific situation in the UK, the Sellafield um, uh, nuclear plant. But so you, you've done lots of nonfiction yourself. But what what does this, as it were, the the novelization, the fiction, allow you to do that the the essays and the critical thinking and that sort of thing that doesn't necessarily allow. Well, you know, I I have to confess to an essayistic impulse, and uh, I don't want it to I don't want it to uh, impinge on my fiction, you know. Um, and uh, so I sort of, I mean, I'm deadly serious about all my nonfiction, but but I do sort of let it spend itself off in specifically nonfiction forms, so that I can let my characters' own minds work in the way that their minds should work, you know. I, as far as, you know, it's like, um, I think it must be a little bit like writing music or something, you know, where, where you have an intention and then you see what you have produced and you say, yes, that bears some relation to my intention, (laughs) Mm -hmm. but, uh, it takes its own way. It has its own vocabulary to use a rather dull word. So do you feel sometimes when you're writing that it's more about finding things, discovering things, going on the journey of it than than um than making things for want of a better word? That's absolutely true. I mean, I you know, it's kind of an ironic thing, but I've always made a great rule of not knowing what will happen next, you know. That's how I wrote House. Oh wow. Yeah, and that's how I wrote Gilead, and then then Gilead, of course, controls a great deal about what happens next in all subsequent mm-hmm. books. But uh, if I've I've used to have a rule that uh, when I chose anything, you know, a, a character's name or a characteristic behavior or anything, I would make myself consider and reject at least three versions of it knowing that my what I would reach for first would be something somewhat conventional, you know? Okay. And, um, well, it, it, it's a discipline that I hope has become more automatic than simply conscious, you know, conscious as it was. But th- that is a, you know, a problem in fiction is that the tendency, it's like the, you know, museum memories, the painters talk mm. about, you know, mm. uh, you've seen something done and that in itself takes a vitality out of it you know mm. um, so i i it was interesting hearing you say that your approach to writing the novel you don't necessarily know what's going to happen you don't necessarily you haven't necessarily 
sketch the end from the beginning. Um, obviously, many people think of a novelist as a bit like God in their world, um, sort of has mapped out everything and knows what will happen and is essentially writing the, the script and the play. And in a way, that's often the way it's associated, especially with some forms of Calvinism, that, that there is a very pre predetermined script uh, that we are all going to follow for the glory of God, of course. But nonetheless, we cannot diverge from the the character lines and parts that we play in that sense. What's your view on that, Marilyn? Is it more like the, the, the that or is it more like your one where you don't necessarily know what's happening next? Maybe God doesn't necessarily know exactly what's happening next. I don't speculate on what God knows. I think that's probably <laughs> above my pay grade, as they say. But um you know, uh, if you read Calvin, he obviously, neither he nor anyone who believed in predestination uh, believed that it had the kind of consequences that you described. They 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 make the argument for the, for the theory, and then they are all moralists and ethicists who put mm. most profound importance on the choices you make on the assumption that you're making them responsibly, you know, out of your own resources or lack thereof. Um, if you look at the Summa Theologiae or at the Summa Contra Gentiles, you will find that that Thomas Aquinas believed in predestination. Mm. Um, if you read Ignatius of Loyola, you will find that he believed in predestination. It's very straightforward about it. Uh, they, the uh, Augustine, of course, did. And I mean, it, it seems to theology in the pre-modern period to have been a natural consequence of the idea of God's omniscience, you know. Um, I think that uh, it, I think that if you understand time differently, <laughs> I haven't <laughs> written that essay yet, but uh, <laughs> um, I think that they are uh, all of them captive here I'm talking about St. Augustine, all of them captive to a, uh, you know, locked-in causality, you know, uh, the only kind of causal relations that we could see among things before, before very recently, you know. Uh, and that, uh, that, in, that has very direct uh, mm. determinist implications. Um, I think that, that the predestination is characteristic of Christian theology. It is a typical error of Christian of Christian theology. Um that, you know, we could learn to think around it. That uh Calvin has been associated with it polemically and it's based really on the ignorance of other traditions that it has been treated as if it were something that were only his. You also once wrote this quote. We're doing a lot of quoting you to yourself today, Marilyn. Apologies. It's just so good. <laughs> After all, we are remarkable. We alone among the creatures have learned a bit of the grammar of the universe. I suppose that given that how aware we are of the impact we have on our world, um, how how would you describe our uniqueness among the animals? Because that freedom, that ability of learning the grammar of the universe means we we sort of I suppose it, it endows us with greater responsibility, and I'm not sure how well we're doing in that in that way. Well, you know, yes, we're very responsible, and no, we're not doing well with our responsibility. That those two things are true. I think it's also true that uh, 
you know, uh, we we in all earnest good intention we we make terrible mistakes. Um, you know, antibiotics might turn out to be the most disastrous development <laughs> that human beings have have produced. You know, all done in very good faith and mm. meticulously. Um, <clears throat> I uh, I mean, I'm I think Milton is wonderful, but the idea that there is a beautiful Satan in a sense that, that what we are, you know, that our, our adversary uh, is no simple evil. It is something mm. that is, uh, you know, very beautifully, I think I articulated in the idea of a fall, the fact that there is some way in which there's a certain wrongness about things, you know, that and our continuous contest is to understand and to avoid, but at the mm. same time, we are fallen creatures and we will, you know, we're so hard on each other for making mistakes. I think that the idea of the fall is very gracious because it knows that we will all make mistakes and mm. that they compound and they're part mm. of our history of being in the universe. Mm. That's really interesting because if I think about conversations I've had with friends who aren't Christians, that's one of the main criticisms of Christianity is that it has quite a quite a gloomy view of humanity. But you're saying that actually that's a a very generous way of thinking about what we can't deny, which is that, like you say, we are so mistake prone. Um, so actually, you put a completely different spin on it, reframe that completely. Good. Yeah, <laughs> I, I, I wonder whether the the modern humanist project that we described earlier kind of has done away with, in a sense, that idea. You know, call it original sin or fallenness or whatever, uh, and 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 replaced it with a well, we're fundamentally good with this tabula rasa. We, you know, and it's it's the world that sort of stops us. I mean, do you take a different view to to that? Do do you take that more, in a sense, pessimistic view? that no we're we're inherently fallen in that sense marilyn well you know um i think we have to consider goodness you know i mean god so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son you know that there's a very strong uh theme in the bible that suggests that god values us enormously you know that there is a, a category of goodness, which is the, you know, it's like the, 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 the value that a parent finds in a child. You know, it doesn't mean they always behave well. It means that they exist. And there's a profound delight in the fact that they do exist. You know, um, I think that, uh, you know, we, our human freedom has been the freedom in many cases to be self-destructive and to be destructive of one another in a terrible degree. Um, but, uh, you know, but never, I mean, David sins grievously, you know, uh, the the sons of Jacob sin grievously and so on. There is no uh, suggestion that we lose our value because we, um, as human beings, are prone to, you know, prone to the things we're prone to. The list is very long. Um, so, I mean, you know, I, I just wrote a book on Genesis. Um, and I'm so struck by the recurrence of the word good, you know. Mm. It was very good. Um, 
And if you look at at uh, contemporary contemporary with the writers of Genesis, uh, Babylonian texts and so on, there's no suggestion of an inherent goodness in being. You know, that's a that's a Hebrew innovation. You know, Hebrew insight. Um, and I think, uh, I mean, you know, I think we have to think about good in new terms than their narrowly moralistic ones. I do think, as John Ames or somebody says, <laughs> that that the ordinary virtues are courtesies that we owe one another. You know, mm. that you're not good for your own sake. You're good mm. because the people around you deserve that you should be, you know, Um but there's another good than that. There's beautiful, physical, living, thinking, solitary, loving goodness, you know? Yeah. And this is what I enjoy so much about you and your work and the way you see the world is again, second back, I said it right, right at the top of the podcast is not in a naive way, in an extremely holistic way, you make me really think about my humanity as something extremely valuable in a way that I haven't read huge amounts elsewhere. And um, and it's sort of a 3D, a 3D account, you know, this again, we're called re-enchantment. And I think any re-enchantment that this current world will be interested in, it has to be like some kind of 3D, can hold multiple tensions together, can hold complexity, can hold good, inherent goodness and grief, can hold all of these things together. Otherwise, it falls a bit flat. Do you think if we try and present this form of, oh, you know, Christianity can re-enchant things, but if we present it a bit 2D, actually, that's not that attractive because actually that doesn't resonate to these tensions we feel. I think that's true. And I think that we have to remember also that Christianity is much deeper than Christianity. You know? I mean, yeah. we, it, it has been such a generator of art and literature and architecture and all the rest of it that we tend to act as if those things equal Christianity when actually, you know, it's... St. Paul wandering through the ancient world, you know, getting, you know, thrown in prison and so on, um, over a, a, a profound, the profound articulation in physical form of the idea, these words are also inadequate, of mm. the idea of the deep commitment of God to his creation, you know? Um, if, you know, People, you know, I mean, there are people that maintain church connections over generations because they like to be married in churches. You know what I mean? That sort of thing, uh, which would be marked by pollsters as uh, adherence to Christianity, you know. But the other, the deeper thing beyond all the beautiful culture and so on that it's generated and continues sometimes to generate. Beyond that, there is this very intensely individual, physical, you know, vulnerable sense of what human beings are and, and what God's commitment to them mm. is. And, and yet it feels like less and less people, perhaps in the West at least, are aware of that, that extraordinary story, that extraordinary deep mystery and truth. You obviously have sought to sort of re-enchant the world in your corner of it, Marilyn, through your writing and it's soaked in the influence of of scripture and theology and the Christian story. But today we live increasingly in a, in, in a 
post-Christian West where people have more or less forgotten that story, even if they still appreciate the art and literature and institutions that, that, you know, are part of our everyday life. And we owe to that Christian tradition. So, so what, what would you say is the way that if we are, if people have are increasingly becoming disenchanted, as we've said, because they're being sort of cut off from that, that sort of understanding of who they are made in God's image and, and all of the, the, the richness that that brings into life, how do we seek to re-enchant that? Um, how, how I, it's a huge question I appreciate, but what, what was, where do we begin given that people hardly even recognize the story anymore? Um, uh, where, where would we even start these days? Well, you know, um, you know, I, I think that it simply has to be said that the churches have, have failed. Um, one of the things that certainly happened in my experience is that um, there was a period during which uh, the church wanted to sort of erase its differences from the from the world, you know, and so <clears throat> uh, you know the sort of um, psychological you know language, if that's what it was, became more important than scriptural language, and and soothing people's neuroses became more important than addressing the fact of their souls and so on. You know, M- moral uh, therapeutic deism. I've heard it described as sometimes. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> and and you know, if you rub people, I mean, Christianity is full of incredibly special language. You know, transfiguration and all these kinds of things. If you deprive people of the special vocabulary, which carries enormous richness of assertion and so on, uh, then you've de- you've deprived them of the ability to understand. And uh, people, you know, from the idea that theology is dull, people have fled away from uh, what is actually ideally the common possession of humankind, which is, the, you know, the fact of the value of human being. Um, I mean, just that is a foundational value. So is it that the church needs to do a better job or do we need to find new avenues to to tell this story again? I, 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 I'm I not saying you have all the answers here, Marilyn, but just be interested in your thoughts. <laughs> yeah. Well, ideally, it's not either or, you know, um, but the church, you know, has had a little tendency to lose its audience. And um, that's a big problem, you know. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, it's also true that uh, historically, in every field, uh, you know, an, an articulate individual person can create a huge aura of, of, of significance around them, you know, people people saying yes, you know, I mean, the, the sort of Martin Luther King effect or mm. something, you know, um, the, um, you know, or the St. Paul effect for that matter, you know, uh, it, it, it's minute in its beginnings and, and spreads by the affinity that people feel for, for the affirmation of, you know, of the beauty of existence and so on. Um, which I think, you know, you know, the Psalms, that's what it's about, what they are about, you know, the great, the idea of the goodness of creation is what it's about. And, and um, I think that 
you know, things have been lost and recovered historically can be again. Well, that probably is a good place to wrap things up. Um, thank you so much for spending some time with us on the podcast today, Marilyn. It's, yeah, been, it's, it's been a real delight. Um, you said you, you've be um, you've written a book on Genesis. Um, mm -hmm. uh, tell us about any other projects that are in the pipeline. I'm sure people would love to know what's, what's coming. Well, at the moment I'm, I'm, I have to write, uh, finish a lecture I'm giving in Chicago in a few days, actually. Um, and uh, that totally engrosses my consciousness for the moment, <laughs> except for reading my students' books. Um, <laughs> um, I'm, you know, after this lecture is over, I, th this is what happens to me. You know, I get all narrowed in on some subject and then, woof, it's over. <laughs> the world is large again. You know? <laughs> so we will see. Check in and you'll find me doing something in a month Great. or so. Thank you. Thank you for re-enchanting the human story with us certainly my pleasure i would love to do that well perhaps we will check in with you again in the future but yeah. uh yeah it's it's been a real delight to spend some time with you marilyn thank you so much for being our guest today from the us on today's edition of re-enchanting thank you You've been listening to Reenchanting. In these early episodes, it makes a huge difference if you can rate and review the podcast wherever you're listening, and it helps others to discover the show. Thank you. You can also find more episodes, articles, and resources at seenandunseen.com. See you next time.